This is 2.1, a Netrunner Reboot Project podcast. Episode 34, The Gibson Akamatsu Test. Hey, this is Remy. The title card of this week's episode is Swordsman, a new piece of ice in second thoughts. Uh, we'll get to the ability a little later on. The flavor text, you know what, we'll get to that a little later on too. In this episode, we'll cover the corpse side of second thoughts, as well as some uh, breaking news. Breaking news. The patch notes. So shortly after I recorded the previous episode, Big Boy posted the latest batch of patch notes, and there is one major adjustment for a new card from the third booster, Style and Slander. But largely the other changes he has said are uh, more mild. He thinks that the card pool is in a very good spot right now, so there's just some light buffs, uh, light nerfs to a few cards, uh, although one of them is significant. And we'll hit that one first. It's Chronal Retrofitting from Style and Slander, which is the third booster, as I said. It's a 3-1 Haas Bioroid agenda. When your turn begins, gain click if the runner spent or lost a click during a run last turn. This has been changed from a 3-1 to a 4-2 and has gained an ability, when you score it, gain one credit for each resed bioroid. Here is the logic, according to the big boy. A chronal retrofitting has taught me a valuable lesson about HB agenda balance, one which I should have already understood, given my nerf to accelerated beta test. HB cannot have three advancement agendas with significant snowballing abilities. Because of the strength and ease with which HB can present never-advanced threats in the early game, and how difficult it is for most runners to contest even 50% of these threats, the worst-case scenario for the runner ignoring an early HB remote cannot be significantly more than two scored agenda points. A chronal retrofitting scored in the early turns of the game is absolutely devastating, for most runners, particularly the most interactive ones. Supercharging your bioroids and click loss effects feels great, but more like something you should have to work to achieve in the mid-game, or that the runner should have more of an opportunity to contest. Since this makes chronal more difficult and more expensive to score, I wanted to give it another effect to make it feel worth the work, but not one that makes it any stronger to score early, hence tying the credit gain to something that scales over time. Here are some more nerfs uh, for various cards. First, Commercial Bankers Group from the first booster, Reflections, although it is a rebooted card originally in Democracy and Dogma, the third pack of the fifth cycle, the Mumbad cycle, which is otherwise outside the purview of re Reboot, it is a Wayland asset with a res cost of 1, a trash cost of 2. When your turn begins, 
gain three credits if there is no ice protecting this server. It is now unique. Here's the big boy's comment. I love what Commercial Bankers Group has done for naked asset economies, giving them a way to force the runner to waste time while their more difficult-to-trash assets can tick away. However, some decks, that aren't even particularly greedy in their setup, really have trouble contesting multiple Commercial Bankers Groups early in the game, making games where the corp has two CBGs immediately feel like total variance losses. CBG being unique means that the runner will only have to deal with one at a time, making them about three credits better off when the corp has a top-tier opening draw. Sometimes the runner just has to let CBG tick for a turn while they set up their own economy, and now they'll be a little less punished for this. The next nerf is to Reality 3D from Data and Destiny, the fourth and final deluxe FFG expansion in Reboot, in fact the last expansion of any kind by Fantasy Flight in Reboot. Reality 3D is an illicit NBN asset with a res cost of zero and a trash cost of eight. That was the original buff, changing the trash cost from six to eight. The new nerf drops the trash cost back down to seven. When you res Reality 3D, you take one bad publicity because it's illicit, and then when your turn begins, you gain a credit. Or if the runner is tagged, you gain two. The big boy says, No one was playing Reality 3D before Sizzler was released, but now it's quite a nice card in that deck, making its original buff a bit more radical than necessary. At seven to trash, it's a little more reasonable for the runner to deal with, but I believe it won't see any less play. Speaking of Sizzler, that is the next nerf. Sizzler igniting the discourse from the recent Style and Slander booster, a 4515 NBN ID. Whenever you score an agenda, if it does not share a name with any other agenda in your score area, gain two credits and remove a bad publicity. The nerf is to change that from gain two credits to gain one credit. The big boy says, I'm really happy that people seem to be enjoying Sizzler. And I think the overall design has been a home run. However, I think it's a little stronger than I'd like it to be. In particular, scoring 2-1 agendas for break-even credits to remove a bad publicity feels a bit too easy. And doing that should at least cost some tempo. Sizzler is a tiny bit richer than necessary right now. And this change should get it feeling just right. Next is one of the collaboration agendas from... Style and Slander, Power Grid Reroute, the 5-3 HB and Wayland agenda that when you score trashes all installed hardware and all virtual resources. That has now been changed from and to or. Big Boy says, I've heard the feedback that although this card might not be super competitive, it can lead to some really feel-bad moments. I'm going to stick up for reroute a bit by retaining the ability to wipe the board of interfaces, particularly because interfaces are so devastating for these slower decks to face. But we've removed, we're removing the added power that felt like unnecessary salt in the wound. I don't know that this is going to be the end of it. There's still been quite a bit of discussion. Of course, you can get in on that discussion by going to the Reboot Discord and jumping in on the balance discussion. Sub, uh, subreddit, it's not a subreddit, it's a, a channel. 
And there's been some back and forth even after this change, maybe a suggestion that this is going to turn into a trace effect. Uh, we'll see. Right now, it sits where it is. And another collaboration agenda from Style and Slander, Adaptive NetBrains, the 4-2 Genteki Wayland agenda. The advancement requirement is decreased by one if there is another installed card with three hosted advancement tokens. And then when a runner makes a run, you may move an advancement token from one installed card to another. The change is that advancement, that number of three, the advancement requirement decreased by one if there is a card with three tokens on it, advancements, that's now been changed to four. He says, this is a small change to give runners that are able to attack early more of an opportunity to steal net brains before the corp has the board state required to fast advance it out. And the final change is a buff to Akiko Nisei, which was rebooted, imported rather, not changed from Reflections, the first booster pack. Originally, it was in Rain and Reverie, which was the very final Fantasy Flight release, the fifth deluxe box. Akiko is a 4512 Shaper ID with one link, that whenever you access cards from R&D, you get to do a side game as the runner, and if you spend the same number of credits as the Corp, you get to access an additional card. The buff is to change it from a 45-card deck to a 40-card deck. And Big Boy's comment here, in Reflections testing, wow, time flies. Akiko was tested at 15 influence and proved very powerful, so we left her unchanged to be safe. The consensus since then is that her current state is weak, even with the help of reverse engineering. So we're throwing her a bone stat-wise in a different way that should make her feel more streamlined and consistent. So there is your latest roundup of patch notes. These come along every few months, or especially... After a release, we heard a few from Style and Slander when it hit the wider community outside of the testing group. And uh, sometimes when you have something that is particularly in need of adjustment, like we saw with uh, Chronal Retrofitting. Experiential Data. Worlds 2013. But we're here in the release window of Second Thoughts, which again came out in late October of 2013. Was it early November? Anyway, right around there, but right before Worlds. Now, this deck pack was not, this pack was not legal for Worlds of 2013. It was only the meta that was through opening moves. So in looking through all of the information I could about Worlds, I never found any article from either the winner, or the runner-up. So what I'm going to do is a little bit different. Uh, so I'm not going to talk too much about it this week. I'm a little bit I'm a little bit short on time, and so that's why this episode's a bit shorter again. Um, of course, you know, I'm not trying to make excuses, but you know, I did say way back when I first started, I wasn't going to be doing hour-long episodes every week. So I've got, I guess I've got to split the difference. Am I going to stick with an hour-long episode or is it going to have to go to every other week? I'm trying to keep it close to weekly at the moment. Uh, it's a little tricky. Anyway, so what I'm going to present here in the show notes, you can find a link to the Board Game Geek thread where they've found 25 of the top 32 deck lists. And so 
you can go take a look at that. I'll also provide the links to onto YouTube to all of the video coverage for the finals and maybe the semifinals. Uh, we'll see. We'll see how much I can fit into the character limit in the show notes. But I will tell you that who the top four finishers were. The world champion in 2013 was Jens Eriksson. He was running an Andromeda deck with Data Sucker, uh, not too far off the Andy Sucker uh, reboot version pre-con- pre-constructed deck, and a version of Haas Bioroid with Fast Advance. His runner-up competitor was Andrew Veen, who was running a Catman deck. In fact, only one of the non-Andromeda decks in the top eight. And then his corp deck was an NBN, Never Advance. The next two, the the third and fourth place finishers were Aaron Andreas, not sure how to pronounce his last name, who was on an Andromeda deck, though I guess you'd just call it a good stuff deck because there was no data sucker. And uh, Wayland Kill, Tag and Bag, has Scorched Earth in it anyway. And the other third and fourth place finisher was Jesse Vandover, who was also on an Andromeda data sucker deck, but his NBN corp deck was running Psychographics. So looking for that burst fast advance. It was mentioned in some comments that uh, Jens Eriksson actually finished the Swiss rounds in ranked 30th of 32, but still managed to navigate the final rounds to come out on top. Satellite Uplink. Let's take a look at the Corp cards from Second Thoughts. Only six, as I mentioned last week, only six of the 11 Corp cards receive any kind of adjustment. As far as the distribution, there are two of each faction, including neutral, except Wayland gets an extra third one. Let's start with the buffs. There are no nerfs. For Haas Bioroid, Wotan, a Bioroid barrier, has had its res cost reduced from 14 to 10. It is a strength 10 and 5 influence. It has 4 subroutines and the run, unless the runner spends 2 clicks. And the run, unless the runner pays 3 credits. And the run, unless the runner trashes 1 installed program. And the run, unless the runner takes 1 brain damage. Hellion Alpha Test, an HB Black Ops operation with a cost of one and three influence. You play only if the runner installed a resource on the previous turn. Its effect is has gone from a trace two to a trace five, which, if successful, adds one installed resource on top to the top of the stack. But if it's not successful, you get a bad publicity. That's why it's a Black Ops operation. One of the NBN cards, Muckraker, is buffed. It is an illicit sentry. So again, when you res it, you take a bad publicity. Its res cost is also 5. Its strength is changed from 3 to 4. It's also 3 influence. has 4 subroutines. The first is a trace 1 to give a tag. The second is trace 2 to give a tag. The third is trace 3 to give a tag. And the fourth is and the run if the runner is tagged. 
art here from Ed Matinian has a particular distinctive style, although this one I would say is more substantial than uh, most of the rest of his stuff. All three Wayland cards receive buffs. First, the Cleaners, a 5-3 agenda. Whenever you do meat damage, do one, now two, additional meat damage. Elizabeth Mills, an asset whose res cost has been reduced from two to one, trash cost of one, to influence. When you res Elizabeth Mills, you remove a bad publicity. Her other ability is you can spend a click and trash her to trash one location and then take one bad publicity. And off the grid, an upgrade has had its res cost reduced from six to five. The trash cost is zero, and its strength, or rather its influence cost, is three. You can only install off the grid in a remote server, which seems thematically appropriate, and the runner cannot initiate a run on that server, although they can trash it by making a successful run on HQ. Our five unchanged cards include both Jinteki cards, Clone Retirement, a 2-1 agenda. When you score it, remove a bad publicity, but when the runner steals it, take a bad publicity. And Swordsman, our title card for this episode, a destroyer sentry with a res of three, a strength of two, and one influence. The runner cannot use AI programs on Swordsman. One subroutine is to trash an AI program, and the other subroutine is to give a net damage. Art here from Adam S. Doyle. I mention the art because I've previously mentioned these artists in the Maker's Eye segments in previous episodes. The other NBN card, Shipment from Sansan, is a double operation with a cost of zero. You place up to two advancement tokens on a card that can be advanced. And the two neutral cards are both unchanged. Profiteering, a three-for-one agenda. When you score it, you take up to three bad publicity, but you gain five credits for each. And restructure, a transaction operation that costs 10 and gives you 15. The at-a-glance Reddit thread said that in this pack, good for Jinteki is clone retirement. Potentially useful for any corp is swordsman. Looking at the pre-cons for Reboot, Shipment from Sansan is in a uh, three copies in a Next Design Rush deck, although that's missing 11 cards that we currently don't have in this pool, notably Next Silver, which doesn't come until the beginning of the next cycle. <laughs> and Clone Retirement, which is uh, makes three appearances in a Jinteki Personal Evolution Never advanced deck. That one's missing 16 cards that we haven't seen yet, although 11 of them come in the next deluxe. So after Honor and Profit, we'll have most of that pre-constructed deck available. And then there's another card, but it deserves its own segment. Mandatory Upgrades Restructure. The Reddit thread, at a glance, good, what cards are good for each faction, says that restructure is good for Wayland and potentially useful for any ID. In fact, we see it in five pre-constructed decks. It uh, makes uh, to three of and four of them 
including three different Wayland IDs. So Wayland in particular likes restructure, as mentioned in that Reddit thread. I did touch on uh, why, why is it that restructure is good? Well, it's money. I touched on this in a previous episode, but it extends the pattern that was set up by Beanstalk Royalties and Hedge Fund in the core set. So Beanstalk nets you three, Hedge Fund nets you four, Restructure nets you five credits, five credits for one click. That's very good. But of course, for Beanstalk, you can do that from zero. Hedge Fund, you have to have five. Restructure, you have to have 10. So the trick is, does your deck routinely have 10 credits that it's just sitting on? If so, restructure is a good fit. And since Wayland decks tend to be wealthy, and one of them in particular starts with 10 credits, right? Doesn't uh, Grendel, we'll get to it. Grendel, I think, starts with 10 credits and a bad publicity. Uh, much easier for those to have the 10 credits in hand and net five. So if your deck is, you find it yourself sitting on a bunch of money a lot, maybe you could slot restructure too. It's neutral. Ice analyzer. Uh, new ice options in second thoughts. Yeah, I don't have a matrix analyzer segment this time. I don't really have a lot to say. Well, I have some things to say about a couple of the ice that have been changed. Otherwise, I think the only interesting thing that I would comment on, so this doesn't, doesn't need its own segment, right? Is shipment from Sansan. It's a double. I've been analyzing the doubles, and this one already cost zero. So it continues the thread, the tendency of doubles to be costing zero. But let's take a look at the three new pieces of ice that Second Thoughts brings along. Swordsman. Let's start with Swordsman. One of the interesting things about trap ice is that the runner has no way to deal with it unless they happen to be packing an AI breaker. Now the core set of course came with two AI breakers, Worm and Crypsis. Both of them are fairly unwieldy to use, especially Worm. Crypsis is not exactly uncommon, but I always have had a hard time making Crypsis really work. It's a big cost to install. You constantly have to be spending clicks to put um, virus counters on it. And then it's just ex it's kind of expensive to use. It starts at a flat strength of zero every time. Uh, still, because of this, even though Crypsis does see pl has seen play, very few high-level decks have le were leaning on an AI breaker as their only breaker or their primary breaker. And even if they were, again, not necessarily cheap or easy to use them frequently. Well, that's in the process of changing where we're going through the pool right now. At the end of the Genesis cycle, uh, we saw the first AI breaker since the core set in Darwin. And Darwin received a nice little reboot upgrade in the form of an extra strength. So it's always at a base strength of one whereas previously it was base strength of zero. Then the big new entry from creation and control, of course, is Ottman, which paired with Data Sucker became a very strong deck and one which really could rely primarily on the AI breaker. You just install a couple of them, maybe three even, but certainly a couple of Ottman at, say, strength zero and three or four, and with Data Sucker, you're set to break just about everything. And looking forward, there are several more yet to come in the next few expansions. Knight comes in the next pack. The fifth pack has Alpha and Omega. 
and then the next deluxe packs ha has Overmine. And that's most of the AI breakers. There's only one or two more after we get to Honor and Profit. So here, knowing that Knight, Alpha, and Omega are yet to come, Atman has already arrived, it's time for the Corp to get something with which to combat an AI deck. So Swordsman is kind of like a reverse trap. So like I said, a trap, as we know, can only be broken by AI breakers, but Swordsman can't be touched by AI breakers. And since it's a destroyer, it absolutely kneecaps a deck that is using an AI as their sole breaker. So really, Swordsman could be viewed as a tech card. So a tech card is technology, that you will, that you specifically include in your deck to combat a particular effect that you expect to see in an opponent's deck, but that otherwise doesn't necessarily do much for you. Think of Plascrete Carapace. If you are against Wayland or anybody that might have Scorched Earth, Plascrete Carapace is very strong. But if they don't have anything that does meat damage, Plascrete Carapace does nothing. It's a tech card. Same is pretty much true with Swordsman. It's a good one. It's very good. If you are facing an AI, a strong AI deck, but if they don't run any AI, it's only binary taxing ice because it can be passed by only taking one net damage, which really isn't much. Or if you've got Garot, of course, we don't have Garot yet. It's coming. You can break it for only two. Mimic breaks it for only two. Fairy, of course, for nothing. Now, if you're running Ninja or Fem or Pipeline, they all break it for four. So I guess that's the low end of an analog taxing. But the main reason you're packing Swordsman is because you expect to see AI. And against an AI deck, it forces them to make some changes. They have to pack some backup, which means, in effect, their deck is weaker because of the, just the existence of Swordsman. Muckraker is a chunky and uh, interesting piece of ice. It is taxing ice. It does have an end-the-run sub, but that end-the-run can be avoided by something other than a breaker, so we consider it to be taxing ice. Now, as the runner, you're probably going to want to break it, but you don't have to. So let's start with the typical runner situation, which is that you don't want to float tags. So in this case, you can hit Muckraker with no breaker, and if the corp doesn't pay to increase any of the traces, get through it for six credits. That's, of course, the bad publicity means next time it'll only be five on every other run, but it's six. Six is a pretty hefty tax. Remember, we look at binary as being something that's only one or two. And even with your standard killers, it doesn't really get a lot better because Garot needs six, Ninja needs six, Mimic needs four and a couple data sucker tokens, Dagger needs five, well, Fairy only needs two. So in this typical situation, this is analog taxing ice because it costs you a lot, even with a breaker, and it's a fairly substantial cost. At this point, the only sentries in the pool that cost more to get through than Muckraker are Ichi 2, Archer, and Janus. Those are big ones. But that's assuming that you don't want tags. What if you are floating tags? Tag me. That's very common with Andromeda, these decks that did so well in Worlds 2013. is There's just the tag me style. 
Well, suddenly, this ice becomes very different and a lot worse. Because if you are tag me, you don't care about those first three subroutines. You don't need to break them. You just take the tag. It doesn't matter. So all you have now is just that one subroutine that says end the run if you're tagged. And it's a four-strength sentry. And after the first time you run into it, you also have an extra credit to spend. So now, since you don't have to worry about those first three subroutines, Garot, Ninja, they only cost three. Mimic, only one. And a couple data sucker tokens. Or again, less than that when once the bad publicity hits. So what's interesting about it is that if you are going tag me, it changes from being a heavy analog taxing piece of ice to really almost a binary end the run because you can turn it off fairly cheaply. So maybe if you're NBN and you're packing muckraker, you want to get them into tag me mode and then take advantage of those tags. The third piece of ice in this pack is Wotan. And Wotan is a big boy. Uh, let me just talk stats for a minute. First, this is a five influence card. So in the reboot project, this is now the fifth five influence card we have seen after Biotic Labor, Scorched Earth in the core set. Originally, they were four. Director Haas from Creation and Control and Escher from Creation and Control. It's the third. So with uh, Biotic Labor and Director Haas, it's the third five influence card just for Haas Bioroid. And it is the one and only piece of ice in Reboot that is five influence. Second, it is one of the highest costs to res a piece of ice. In the Fantasy Flight pool, Janus at 15 and Orion, which comes up later, were both 15. And then you have Wotan at 14 with another one that comes later, Curtain Wall, also 14. So second most expensive, well, I guess technically third most expensive piece of ice. Now in Reboot, Wotan and Janus have gotten some help, and they're only 10 cost and 12 cost, respectively. But that still makes Wotan the fourth most expensive piece of ice in the game. And then third, it has 10 strength. That makes it the strongest ice in Netrunner. And that doesn't matter whether you're talking Fantasy Flight or Null Signal or Reboot. No other piece of ice is 10 strength. No other piece of ice is 9 strength. So, Wotan is big and strong. Not surprisingly, what you get out of the deal is the most taxing piece of ice in the game so far. In fact, well, it's tied with Janus. And Janus is more expensive to res by a couple credits because it's harder to break things with killers than it is to break things with fractors. And Janus really rewards, punishes a face check, whereas Wotan doesn't punish a face check at all. As is true with all the Bioroids, it is a taxing piece of ice, not an end-the-run ice, because even though it has end-the-run subroutines, you can find other ways around it than paying with a breaker. Even though, if you do use Corroder, it's still going to cost you 10 credits to get through once. And you know what? Don't even try to break it with Inti. That'd be 22 credits. But if you don't have a Fractor out, you don't want to spend 10 credits, you can still get through it 
because it's Bioroid. The cost? Two clicks, three credits, it's not bad, a brain damage, that's not great, and trash a program. So 10 credits is probably cheaper, but you don't need a fractor to get through. And notice the way it's worded, none of those are going to hit you unless you're going through. So it's just an end the run. But if you do want to get through, you need to do them all. That means you need to be able to trash a program, which means it's one of those trash a program subroutines. Usually if it says trash a program, you can ignore that if you have no programs installed. Here, you need to have a program installed to be able to do it. So if you don't have any programs, it's really just a hard end the run. Enigma. Let's take a look at some of the flavor on a few cards here to round out the episode. Swordsman, as I, is our title card, and as I promised, I would talk about the flavor text here. I just like the flavor text. Writing a program that can pass the Turing test is easy. The Gibson-Akamatsu test is a higher bar, and the only AIs to clear it thus far have been the androids. Even some humans have been known to fail. I don't know. It's mild. It's 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 it, it's mild. it amuses me. As far as where those names Gibson and Akamatsu come from, I presume the Gibson is not me, but William Gibson, the writer of cyberpunk from the eighties and nineties. And I went looking for an Akamatsu. It may just be a reference to like the Akamatsu mem chip, but maybe they got that name from Ken Akamatsu. He was a popular manga author, creator, back in the 90s and 2000s. So maybe that's where that came from. Not that his stuff was cyberpunk, as far as I can tell. Uh, Elizabeth Mills. Of course, you recognize her immediately as the lady being reflected in the window on scorched earth and smiling maniacally as the building is exploding. So... It seems appropriate. Everything about her flavor-wise just really works nicely. For one, her ability is to trash a location. I mean, that's what Scorched Earth does too, so it fits fits right in. You, When you res her, you remove a bad publicity. So that's even alluded to on the Scorched Earth card, right? Where it says some of Wayland employees were within the blast radius of that explosion. So that's, you know, she's there to kind of try to be like, well, no, no, we didn't do this. This just happened. You know, it's, it's completely explainable. But even in the the art, if you look at the, she's like checking boxes off of this, this uh, virtual display. And she seems to have just made the X in the top box. And like, she has like vigorously made that X because she has like slashed it through. The X has got this long tail to it. Like she's done it with some kind of vindictiveness behind it or something. Interesting flavor on the card. And the other one I want to highlight is Jinteki's clone retirement, which is absolutely perfect flavor-wise. Because clone retirement, it tells us right in the flavor text, is a euphemism. When Jinteki's clones are retired, they are actually recycled. They don't sit around in some retirement home. They don't aren't viewed as being people. So. But the way Jinteki portrays it 
is that, look, no, no, see, look, we're taking care of our clones. When they get too old to be in service anymore, we're going to make sure that they're taken care of. And so when you score it, you remove a bad publicity. But the reality is that the clones are simply killed. So when the runner steals it, then you have to take a bad publicity. It's just good flavor. I like it. Many of the cards discussed in this week's episode are linked in the show notes. Music is from Alexi Action, the website that redirects to the Reboot Project homepage. And maybe I won't change that. It seems useful. Is netrunner2.1.com. Head over to the Reboot Discord server to engage in conversation or to find games, which you can play on retechie.fun. If you want to contact me, feel free. The uh, various methods are in the show notes. For the AstroScript pilot program this time, we're returning to the worlds of Android and uh, moving into part four of the different series on clones. And the clone that will be discussed here is the Molloy, M-O-L-L-O-Y, the Molloy model. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Malloy Line Consistency of experience is the hallmark of any successful franchise restaurant. Whether a guest visits a McKings in New Angeles or New Moscow, he should be able to expect the same sort of service, food, and atmosphere. A patron's favorite dish should taste exactly the same every time he visits any of the company's locations throughout the world. The only difference might be the language spoken and that's easily solvable with a low-level translation AI linked to the menus or the server's HUD. Mother Malloy's restaurant chain was one of the first to directly address the issue of consistency among his waitstaff from a genetic perspective. For generations, franchised restaurants have included highly specialized training programs that are used at all of their locations. However, these are prone to a certain degree of variation, often due to each new hire's unique work experiences. Several chains chose to adopt bioroids as a solution to this issue, but many people are less comfortable with bioroids delivering food to the table, particularly at casual restaurants where clientele expect a home-like atmosphere. When Mother Malloy's opened its doors for its flagship restaurant in New Angeles, it was the first restaurant chain to utilize a cooking and wait staff composed entirely of clones. Within three years, their initial success skyrocketed, and they count more than 250 franchise restaurants within New Angeles alone. Their menu offers a diverse range of enjoyable food, but it is hardly revolutionary. In fact, all of the menu's entries are staples taken from casual eateries across the world. What stands out is the fact that their food is virtually identical across all locations. This is possible thanks to their staff being as consistent as possible. Mother Malloy's sought a line that was highly trained in food preparation, but also extremely personable, cheerful, and outgoing. The Malloy line of clones in keeping with the franchise's Irish pub theme, is designed to have casual good looks, 
an easy smile, and roughly Irish-American features. Its members' conditioning and education are focused entirely upon food service and related matters. Because of their extensive interactions with customers, Malloy clones are also trained, in great detail, to engage in casual conversation. They can discuss the weather, local sports teams, and current events in a non-confrontational manner with customers for hours at a time. Their personable nature also offers a substantial economic advantage for the stakeholders in Mother Malloy's. As the clones are the property of the company, they receive no explicit compensation for their efforts. In fact, their conditioning is such that they are thoughtlessly loyal to the company above all else. Their self-interest and measure of self-worth is primarily based upon how they can best serve the restaurant chain. However, customers enjoy the outgoing service that the waitstaff provides and often include generous tips when paying their bills. Not surprisingly, the clones never receive any of these tips. Instead, these funds go directly toward Mother Malloy's bottom line. Restaurants are known for having very high rates of employee turnover. This introduces a significant cost overhead for each restaurant as the paperwork and time involved in hiring and terminating employees requires a significant investment of effort and expertise. However, Mother Malloy's can instead rely on Jinteki to handle all of the maintenance required to keep the clones functioning for their entire operational lifetime. Further, safety laws permit clones to work up to 16 hours daily in most jurisdictions, so a restaurant can operate with a minimal number of clones, far fewer than the number of human employees that would be required. This introduces additional savings. Clone housing, clothing, and basic maintenance introduce additional complexity to this equation, but corporate clone barracks address these needs at cost. The bottom line is clones offer a substantial savings for the restaurant chain. Genetic Features The Malloy clone line is designed around the core concepts of affability and attractiveness. As a result, the clone's physical and psychological profiles are not far removed from those of a normal human, especially when compared to the Henry or Tenma lines. Their genetic personality profile is highlighted through a rigorous conditioning and education program intended to reinforce the restaurant's idealized presentation. Besides variation for male and female submodels, the only significant physical tweaks involve optimizing the body's overall stamina to make it through the daily 16-hour shifts. Mental and hormonal modifications provide the clones with a strong devotion to the chain, as well as an intense need to satisfy the restaurant's clientele. Media inquiries have found that neither Jinteki nor Mother Malloy's employees are willing to go into detail about the Malloy line's overall genetic makeup. Neither company has claimed exclusive ownership of the strain. However, Jinteki has admitted that they will not sell members of this clone line to individuals or companies other than the Mother Malloy's restaurant chain. To date, 
none of the proprietary clones implemented by other food service organizations bear a clear physical resemblance to the Malloy line. Other Enhancements A heat-resistant polymer layer is added to the hands of all clones from the Mother Malloy's line prior to decanting. Because of this modification, Malloy's are capable of handling cookware and tableware that are far hotter than what unenhanced humans could normally grasp. This layer interacts with the body's natural tissues to effectively self-heal from minor injuries. It typically holds up through several years of service, and its deterioration can be cited as a reason to recycle a clone that is neared the end of its planned lifetime. 